Good morning and good afternoon to my OCD family community. It has been a full week here for my household, but my heart is even fuller because I get to be here with you and I have the privilege of connecting y'all to a sweet and giving friend of mine, Nikita Kalam Harris. So family, you know the drill. Get cozy and get ready because we are here to talk advocacy and its role in creating more opportunity in policy. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All righty. So today marks part two of my Finding Unity in Diversity series, where we are exploring treatment intersectionality. And last week, I talked with our brother from a different mother, Sean Flores, regarding some of the barriers in research and treatment not being representative or inclusive to the entire population OCD impacts, which is everyone, y'all. OCD doesn't care what your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual orientation, your neurotype, or your religion is, but it can feel that way. Some folks have to travel internationally, if they can even afford it, to the States or Canada or Western European countries just to get treatment. And that's if they even know that the enemy they're battling is OCD, let alone trusting, managing, affording, coordinating, accessing care. I have family living abroad right now, and I can tell you, the process of trying to come to the U.S., let alone some other areas of the world, it's no joke. So how would we like to be sitting in a queue for maybe a year, maybe two, just to get to the next step in an application process to be able to access a country where we can get treatment? The problem is real. So today we're building on the why of advocacy, not literally the letter Y. I realize advocacy has a letter Y, but the why, the foundational why of why advocacy matters and how it can directly impact policy. And to do that, I reached out to an old friend of mine, Nikita Kalam Harris. Nikita doesn't work in the OCD realm, but she does work quite a bit. And she happens to be the chair for the Advocacy Committee in Southern California for the ADA, which is the American Diabetes Association, not to be confused with ADAA, which over here in our mental health world is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. But with ADA, not only is Nikita doing the thing for diabetes awareness, but she's been to D.C. doing calls of action, training with Congress taking meetings with representatives, you name it. So while her wheelhouse isn't OCD, and we're going to talk about what this experience has been like for her within the diabetes awareness realm, this is the thing. She doesn't just know, she also 
does. The work of putting advocacy into practice to inform and advance policy where it needs to grow. You see what I did there? <laughs> I said grow, not just go, because grow, we're growing. We need growth. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm feeling proud of that. So today kicks off part two of this series. And isn't it wonderful to know that not only are we better together as the OCD family community, but we can lean in and learn from outside the OCD landscape to learn how other trailblazers are taking advocacy and making a difference. And that's really good news, especially when we're talking about needing better representation, understanding, and access to care, be it for mental health or medical health in this case. So please, fam, join me in a warm welcome for Nikita Kalam-Harris. Now, I've known Nikita for uh, 16, maybe 17 years. Oh my goodness. That was what, 2006, 2007? Yeah. Nikita, that is wild. How has it been that long? Oh, my word. Now, y'all, Nikita is a successful and busy woman, okay? She is a mom. She's a wife. She's an actor. She's a professor. She's a podcaster. She's an acting coach. She's a momager, which means she is the mom manager to the most gorgeous little girl, y'all. She's a photographer. And amidst all of that, She's an advocate. It's her ministry. It's her passion. One of her most well-known roles was playing the voice of young Nala in Disney's 32nd animated feature film, The Lion King. That's right. The original, the OG 1994 iconic film. I mean, I remember watching so many classic animated Disney films around that time that were like so amazing and they're so just a piece of my childhood. And little did I know that this familiar voice from this big screen would become a longtime friend. But this highlights something that we're going to get into today, which is the importance of relationship and how advocacy and policy can really do powerful things when we bring ourselves and authentically share our stories. You never know what relationships that can build and what relationships that will create. So let's do this, fam, because I can't wait for you to hear more from Nikita. Hey! Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for being willing to chat with me. I want to talk about like, how can we make policy happen? And then I was like, oh my gosh, even though it's not necessarily OCD, like you were able to do that. And I was like, oh my gosh, advocacy committee for ADA. <laughs> like if we can not have to reinvent the wheel in terms of thinking of some strategies, that would be awesome. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm in this intersectionality series right now, and I don't know how much you know about OCD, but since coming to Indiana and when I started working again after being chronically pregnant for a bit there, uh, <laughs> I started therapy again, and yeah. I got an OCD client that was OCD to the severity that even I couldn't miss it. And I say that because once I learned more about OCD, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much more prevalent than I realized. Mm -hmm. uh, so here... There's very few resources. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to start a podcast, even if it's only for my clients. But at this point, it's been doing well. And I'm just passionate about giving families, spouses, partners, parents, whatnot, 
support mm. because a lot of times people can't even afford for the sufferer to go to therapy and it really impacts the whole family. My dad has type 2 diabetes, but I know dear friends with type 1, including yourself, <laughs> uh, with type 1 diabetes, and it can it can really be absorbing. That is such a, it is such a tricky diagnosis to learn. And I was listening to the ADA interview that you have, and mm -hmm. I was like, that must have been such a learning curve and you were like in college i mean there were just lots of things that you were balancing and trying to learn about at the time so type one it used to be called juvenile diabetes mainly because like babies all the way until like adolescence but now older people are getting type one i was pretty old for type one because i was 19 but our pancreas stops working completely and so we become insulin dependent. Yeah. And so that's how we're different than type two. A lot of times type two will still have a little functionality in their pancreas. So they might have like a pill medication or sometimes they will have insulin or sometimes like when pre-diabetics, if they catch it early enough, they can kind of change their habits and lifestyle and nutrition to kind of avoid even right. getting it. Right. Yeah. So their pancreas can function to the point that if certain things fall within certain margins, they could be able to, say, go off a medication or right, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or way less, yeah. Yeah. But my pancreas is just a dead organ living in there, so I'm going to always need insulin to right. stay alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, aren't we ready for Star Trek where literally everything is like, beep, 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 beep. okay, we're good. Right, right. <laughs> I have an autoimmune disease, which is it, type yes, one. It's autoimmune. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I have an autoimmune disease too. I have celiac. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's quite a process to kind of wrap your mind around. At this point, I can embrace that I know how to manage it. Yeah. But it is really hard when, when you get thwarted. And really all you're feeling is the different symptomology. Did they know, do they have a way to be able to go, okay, when was pancreatic functioning really impacting you versus when you actually found out when it got to a certain severity? Do they have a suspicion of how long you lived with type 1 before knowing? No, I don't. No, type 1, like you don't live with it for a long time and not know because then you once don't your live. Pan <laughs> right, yeah. Because <laughs> once your pancreas stops working, like your body, it's interesting because your body's always trying to naturally survive. Yeah. But you have those uh, symptoms kind of immediately. The okay. losing weight for like no reason, the excessive thirst, the running to the bathroom, like you can't hold your urine lethargy like super fatigue like all that happened probably within a couple of days or weeks of of whatever hits okay. that makes your pancreas stop i think a lot of people have had like either a super stressor or like some kind of infection or something that kind of onset it triggers the um, yeah. that trigger yeah that triggers it but once that thing turns off then it's because off. your body so this this is what i tell if i'm talking with kids insulin is like a key mm -hmm. and so it opens up the cell door and then the food that we eat all the sugar from the food that we eat go into the cell that's giving us energy but when there's no key 
the cell door stays closed. So all that stuff is just going into your bloodstream and collecting. And so your body's like, oh my God, oh my God, where am I going to get energy from? So it starts pulling from fat. It starts pulling from all these different places to kind of survive. And so, yeah, so that's what happens in our bodies with type one. Yeah. And autoimmune, isn't it weird? I mean, there's been so many different ideas and it could be a flu. Some people are like, I got a vaccine. I swear I didn't have this issue before the vaccine. But the reality mm-hmm. is like when we have the gene or we have the carrier, whatever for that autoimmune disease, it might mm-hmm. never activate or it might right, activate. Right. I think mm-hmm. my, my third pregnancy activated mine because I got what felt like the flu that never left. I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, why am I so sick? Oh, maybe because it's a pregnant. Okay. And then I had the baby. I'm like, no, I'm still really sick. And so, yeah, I mean, it is, it's tough. And there's a lot that comes along with having an autoimmune disease. Well, it's just a, it's a roller coaster ride living with like a lifelong condition or disease. And it's interesting with ours because it's kind of invisible. So people don't really know all that we go through on a daily basis, mm-hmm. as opposed to like outward disabilities. Because technically, I was talking to somebody and she was like, yeah, technically we're, we have a disability. And I was like, I never thought of it that way. Because in my mind, you know, just from with society or whatever, when I think of disability, I just think of like the outward, a wheelchair or, yeah. or somebody got in a car accident and, and they have to get amputated. Or That's like the only, I only think of physical when I think of disability, like something with my body, but the internal physical to the point where, yeah, I, I would need assistance getting some sugar if it goes if it goes too low and I'm like almost in a coma then and I could just be walking then yeah I I am I do have a disability (laughs) you're like I need that to live so yeah it's (laughs) very important yeah absolutely yeah and it's insight is half the battle on that so when I was Mm -hmm. listening to your ADA interview I was struck by how you were having these different symptoms. You originally went to the ER after, I think you said you went to Big Boy. Bob's Big Boy, yeah. yeah. It was on, on Labrea and Wilshire, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I remember I remember Bob's Big Boy, some mm-hmm. <laughs> long memories. But you went to the hospital and you were like, because this wasn't normal, you were vomiting, you had barely eaten. You were having a lot of weight loss and no Mm -hmm. real explanation of really what was going on. And they kind of downplayed it at first. Yeah. The nurse, I guess the symptoms I was giving her, she was like, oh, just go home and drink some Gatorade. You're probably dehydrated or. And I was like, no, 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 no. I am down like a few sizes in -hmm. clothes Mm -hmm. and I'm not like eating less. I'm not like running a marathon every day like I'm not doing anything to do this right on Something's top of wrong. The, <laughs> right on top of the fatigue on top of the fact that I can't hold my bladder yeah like, something's wrong yes um, and so they ended up doing tests and the numbers were like off the charts like if I hadn't gone I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you today yeah which is like such a scary but like real yeah realization yeah. <laughs> a real realization <laughs> How's that for fancy? I know it's been a while since we've chatted. You're like, nope, hasn't changed a little. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, and we talk about like, I know from my experience of autoimmune disease, the brain fog has been intense. Yes. Yeah. The fatigue. 
when when somebody describes fatigue as bone crushing, you're like, how? I mean, I get tired sometimes. Once you've had bone crushing fatigue, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. there is such a thing as bone crushing fatigue. And it is, it's kind of insane how it can feel like your body's betraying you in certain ways. Like you're just living like you were living every day. And now all of a sudden there are these challenges just to make it through the day. And so that can be really hard. And certainly you were in college at the time. And, you know, there has been a lot of advancements in technology, continuous like glucose monitors, different things that help manage diabetes and a number of other conditions as well. But back when you were diagnosed, 1999, was it? Yes. Look at me with my notes. No, (laughs) get it, get it. You're like, you know what about my diabetes? That's weird. (laughs) I I took some mental notes there and then I scribbled them down when I got to the office because I was driving. I was like, I will forget these. (laughs) But yeah, 1999, I imagine it was very different. And something that you said struck me and I can't remember Maybe, gosh, maybe it was like 2006, 2007. You could correct me on that. But you had gone a really long time without even encountering another person with diabetes. Oh, yes. Most, I mean, I would say half of my life living with it. So I was diagnosed in 1999. And my when I first got involved with the ADA was in, I believe, 20, it was either 2011 or 2010, when I went to my first call to Congress in Washington, D.C., and call to Congress is it used to be a bi-yearly event, and it involves all 50, I think 50, 49 states or 48 states, Mm -hmm. almost all the states. And there's a few delegates from each state. Okay. And the first day is just training, training, training. So what does it look like when you go to your representative's office? These are the asks from ADA in terms of the fiscal year, what we're asking, like support on, and then breaking down how to tell your personal story and link that with the fiscal ask. And then the next day is just all day on the hill. But in the training, it was so funny because like CGM beepings were going off and all kind of beeping and all, and nobody was even like, what's that? Like now, if I'm like sitting somewhere and, and my thing is just going off, but I know like, oh, I made my little correction. So it's going to keep beeping until like it goes back down. Uh-huh. So I'm not like, I'm not looking at my phone every time it beeps. And people are like, what's that? What's that? But in this room, everybody just knew what that was. Yeah. And so nobody was like, what's that? Or what, what's that noise? Yeah. So that was kind of the first time where I was like in a room with other people at type one. And then being my age yeah. is also different because what's out there. Well, what's out there is mostly type two. But what's out there for type one, it's you you usually just see all these kids. And I was like, what about the people who have grown up? Like we have totally different, we have totally different worries. Like, can I have a baby? And, you know, all these different things from a kid. Right. And so it was really, I would say it was kind of life changing. I've been active ever since. But just to be surrounded by people who were going through what you're going through. Yeah. To know that you're not alone. Yeah. And having some of the same shared stories and things. Absolutely. It's so important. It's part of why I'm passionate. It's probably part of, you know, amongst the million things you do, Nikita. Holy cow. (laughs) Busy woman. Busy mama. Doing the shared stories even for motherhood, you know? It's like something as basic as breastfeeding even where we go, oh, that's like, you know, over (laughs) generations people have done it. So it'll just work. And then you realize like, 
it is really hard hard work and sometimes (laughs) it doesn't work and then it feels like you're the one person in the world that's yeah quote unquote feeling when really no you're working so hard and you're doing your best and it isn't as easy we just assume it's like walking right like you know Mm -hmm. that just happens naturally not like the movies (laughs) much of life is not like the movies Speaking of the movies, too, like, Nikita, you are, again, like, super busy. I saw that you're starting with Zara, with your daughter, doing some auditions and stuff. And you yourself are a successful actress and just a very busy, full resume full of all the things that you're doing. How did you find, because I want to say you learned a little more, had a little more insight after you went to grad school in New York. But yeah. trying to manage career, personal life, what's mm-hmm. that in addition to like m- learning about this and getting involved? Like, how did you even get into getting in- involved with Call to Congress? Okay, so I think it was when I got back to LA. So in New York, like I was on the wrong kind of medications. I just had not such a great team, mm-hmm. especially coming off my mom's insurance when I was like, what is that, 24, 25, when you come off your parents' insurance, something mm-hmm. like that. And then I met a research-based doctor who was doing like a lot of clinical trials. And that was the first time that I actually had like a good endocrinologist type of experience. Okay. And he was like, oh, you're on the wrong kind of medicine for type one. You need to be on this. And then it really started turning around and just knowing exactly what my body was doing and what food, what the relationship of food and insulin is and all of that. So because it's so long of just kind of out of control, I developed two conditions. One, gastroparesis, which is nerve damage in my stomach. So Mm -hmm. digestion is slower. Mm -hmm. And then that diet is totally contradictory to diabetes. I'm sure um, it is. They all are. Story. They all are. There's a new health condition. Just do the exact opposite. You're like, what? That? Right. I don't know what to do. Right. It's like a balancing act. It and is. Then I have neuropathy, nerve damage in my legs and feet. So my hubby gives me little massages on my legs every night. Hey, that's hey. that's not a bad <laughs> way to go, Donovan. I'm, I'm, that's nice. Yeah. And what I would say, my my dad has type two, but his neuropathy has really impacted him at this point, like from his ankles down, he can't really Mm -hmm. feel how he's walking. And so and he's had a number of health problems where we see like when the diabetes was really wreaking havoc. And like Mm -hmm. you mentioned before, it feels like this invisible disorder. So you don't even how could you know the -hmm. extent of damage happening? Inside, yeah. Inside, yeah. So that is, that's really, really tough. So that's that's you, when I, I researched online and then I saw the application on the ADA site. And so I was like, what the heck? And I just applied. Yeah. And that. I've been active ever since. <laughs> was it hard? Was it scary to kind of reach out? Because that's like a whole, I mean, you, you have well, to it have. It was. It was an application, so it wasn't really like reaching out and having to talk to somebody. Okay. It was almost like if you're like applying to school or something. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a long application, but but yeah, no, that part wasn't scary. The, the scariest part the first time was like going into like, who was the senator at the time? 
going into Feinstein's office. And, yes, you know, Diane like all these people's office. It's kind of daunting. And then it's like, well, no, you're the expert of your relationship to this disease and you're telling them what that is. Yes. And then just slapping a, a little data with it and a little like, you know, a little yeah. like, hey, can you can you be on the diabetes caucus or, you know, can you can you say, yes, I will support this and this and this. So, yeah. And you'd have to be I mean, not to throw anybody under the bus, but you'd have to be like a pretty big asshole to be like, no, I don't support you <laughs> when you're standing there and you're like, hi, this is impacting us. Right. This is impacting people. What's interesting is one of the statistics, at least for within OCD, and actually I'm going to pull it up so I don't misquote it because stranger things have happened. One of the statistics within OCD, though, especially within like pediatric cases that are diagnosed, Mm -hmm. about one in 200 kids and teens currently have OCD. And at the time that that statistic was taken, that was about twice as many kids and teens that had the number of diabetes at that time when it was pulled. And so OCD ends up being a lot more common than we think, because I feel like when we Mm -hmm. think of childhood diabetes, we think about it as being a prevalent issue, right? And we think about late onset as that's probably more rare, but my guess is that it's not. Yeah, late onset with adults is i mean it's pretty much an epidemic like there's there's about 37 million americans living with diabetes yeah and that's so that's not even including people who have pre-diabetes right right yeah Yeah. and it's it's a it's an issue and so you think Mm -hmm. about something as i feel like people are aware that diabetes is something where management is necessity especially for type one right because your pancreas Mm -hmm. is not going to do it some folks that may be type 2, there might be some different dietary lifestyle changes that can impact their need for certain medications, but it's a need. It's a need for sustaining life, for function, and yet we yeah. need advocacy. And so we look at some of these other areas in OCD being one of them and going, okay, how do we get more advocacy out there? One of the issues we have in the OCD realm, and I'd be curious to kind of hear your thoughts or experience on it within the diabetes realm, is Mm -hmm. we have here in North America, so mainly I would say Canada, United States, this is not an exclusive list, but majority there and Western European countries, that's where we have some research on OCD and where we've been able to continue to grow research. There Mm -hmm. is not a lot of diversity in the treatment and in the availability of treatment, but also considering some biological markers and how people are going to metabolize or respond differently to medications, Mm -hmm. to treatments. There's not a lot of diversity when it comes to the field of OCD, certainly. But OCD does not discriminate. It it affects everyone, (laughs) no matter. It doesn't care like what your gender is, what your sexual Mm -hmm. orientation, what your what your race, what your ethnicity. It it's it's going to roll how it's going to roll. Did you find any of that when you were getting involved within the advocacy space or even trying to learn about it? I mean, you you didn't. Oh, definitely. I'm sure all the major disease houses run into this because especially when you're trying to when you talk about advocacy on like the national level like it seems like you're talking to the choir 
maybe right. like California. But there's actually a lot of offices like Middle America, some East Coast stuff, where they are really just pushing against just even like universal healthcare. And it's not like this is this huge, innovative thing like everywhere else has been but here. Right. We're constantly trying to push for insulin to be more affordable for Americans living with disease. And we kind of really stress the stories of some of the different economic levels of people living with diabetes, where people are choosing between like, do I pay my rent or do I get this full dosage out of the pharmacy? Or like, I'm going to like cut my dose in half so that my kids can eat or go to school or something like that. So it's like if you put more money into management, into preventative care, then you're saving a lot of money on the end keeping me out of ER. Like it's way more expensive for me to be in ER for like two weeks. I, I once ran, didn't have insulin for five hours because my, my pump was doing something crazy and we didn't know how to troubleshoot it. And that had me in the ICU for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So five hours without insulin, I was in the ICU for two weeks. Yeah. So these are the kind of stories that we try to stress, especially to policymakers that are like blinded or just have no empathy at all. Because at at this point, you can walk into any office. And if you say, do you know somebody who has diabetes or do you have diabetes to somebody in your family or friend? Nobody's going to say no at this point. Right. It's so common. At this point, everybody knows either family or friend, not even friend of a friend. Right. It's that common. The reach is like, take that, Kevin Bacon. We got an N of two here. We're like, we've got like a number of two going. We don't need six degrees of separation. You're right. But the policy does is not. not. It's not accessible <laughs> yeah. for everyone. No. So one of the things you're highlighting, and particularly here in the U.S., I'm sure in other countries, but because of how healthcare is managed and paid for, but the medical costs Mm -hmm. are so inflated, you know, whether it's an EpiPen you need because you're allergic to peanuts or or Mm -hmm. insulin, or maybe you need an SSRI in addition to your treatment care for mental health. The access is not there for everyone, even though we can say, no, yeah, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a couple of people in my family that have diabetes. Uh, Don't even talk about the pandemic, like, exacerbating all of these (laughs) diseases. Right. Right. I mean, the pandemic was not great for OCD, I can tell you that. Yeah. (laughs) It was not great for a lot of things. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, when we think of, like, how much a box of cereal is right now, Right. The inflation on medications and on medical services is through the roof. And yet the need is greater than ever. And there are so many people that literally just didn't even have access. When we think about like the height of the pandemic, at least here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. there was the issue of, you know, if it's a non-essential service. And when do we determine? I mean, people had breast cancer. They had uh, prostate cancer. They had they could have diabetes and not know it and be going through a hypoglycemic episode. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, right now we've got to keep the ERs clear. We've got to keep beds open, ventilators yeah. available. Well, that's, that's why that's why story is so important when you're doing advocacy with these like politicians and things, because data is one thing. But when you if you can make it visual for them, Person. Uh, yeah. personal for them, then when they're advocating on the House floor or something like that, 
you know how you always see these and they're like, John in, in New Mexico. Yeah. They, they love the story, but the story also makes it more real than the data. Like if we're saying one in four Americans report rationing their insulin and we said 37 million people have diabetes, like that's a lot of people who cannot afford the management of this disease. Right. Which means that's a lot of people who are going to end up in ER, which means that's going to a lot of people that are going to end up in the cemetery. Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, you're right. That, I, I mean, mean, you have to be like just that blunt with you some of be these blunt. Yeah. policymaker. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and when you've been that person in the ICU for two weeks, yeah, that story is more than a story. It is yeah. the, I, it could have been the end. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering, because I remember a time when we called and saying to you and you were in the hospital, I'm wondering if that was even during that same two-week stint, how would have been, like, maybe 2011, 2012? I don't know. No, that might have been when I found out of one of the gastroparesis or neuropathy, one of those times. Okay. You're like, one of the in... other fun discoveries that comes along <laughs> right, with right. My, my body. I, I was in there for a few days because they were trying to figure out what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess I I should say, like, how we even know each other. <laughs> All right. We go back. When did, when did you join Sela? Was it like two In the very beginning. Yeah. 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 In the beginning. We were like. We were in that we were back the room at Lake Avenue. Yes, we were. We were Sopranos. <laughs> yes, we were in the basement. Yes. yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So we've known each other then. Was that 2006, 2007, maybe? I think so. Yeah. I was in a musical that Darrell was musical directing. Was and that then, junk? Yeah. And then, you were in junk? Yes. Okay. Junk. And then Darrell and and Jasmine were roommates and yes. Jasmine came up with Sela. So that's how, yes. that's how that happened. Yes. So Nikita and I, we were in a, a community gospel choir together, mm. which was actually super cool. I have to say, and I don't know, because you are... A talented actress, singer, you, podcaster, mom, amazing. Now you're going on to like the mom scene and kind of following in your mom's footsteps with Zara. And she's starting her audition <laughs> career and all of that, which is exciting. But I think like, yeah, back then I was so impressed for a group that did not have auditions to get in. Like literally, you could come as you are, whoever you are, come on in. Mm -hmm. Everyone is welcome. Like I was like, wow, this is such a talented group of people. <laughs> it was. It was like amazing. And I just thought like this is so great that it's like I'm a strong chorus girl. <laughs> And so I was like, yeah, I'll just, yeah, I got you guys. <laughs> but we were Sopranos together for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, were you, did, did you end up singing with them when they sang with you too? No, I did the David Bowie thing. Okay, you did the David Bowie thing. That's still pretty impressive. Nikita is impressive on her own, y'all, though. Like, she doesn't necessarily need a singing group to be impressive. She has a very, very impressive career. But yeah, okay. Yeah, when they did do you two, though, I was like, how did I used to sing with these people? Like, they're singing <laughs> with you two on Jimmy Kimmel. This is amazing. 
yeah. it's a much bigger group than we started out with. And we're like, oh yeah, nine or we ten were like of a us. handful of people, right? We really were. We it were... was literally like a few on each part. Yes, yes, there were a few on each part, and there was like uh, a semicircle. It was semicircle. Yes, gosh, back in the day. But some really fun memories and a lot of it, there was a lot of growth over the years. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of really uh, interesting, talented people just coming together and mm -hmm. putting in the work to create art, and that was amazing. And so now, like, I know you're the chair for the advocacy committee in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, I got that. But yeah, I mean, you one of your more notable roles. And very special to me because I love this. When I was growing up, too, you were the voice of young Nala in Disney's animated The Lion King. That's right. 1994. Yes. Now you have to say original voice because it came out again. Orig you're right. Original voice. So the 1994 one. Yes, 1994. She is the original young Nala. No one preceded you, Nikita. You were the original. I remember, do you remember Rodrigo from some point in Sela? Does that, he was like the Brazilian guy. Rodrigo, I I have to see faces. He was a character. I, I just remember there was something, it was like preseason happy hour or something. I want to say we were like on Ferrix and Pasadena somewhere. And we were sitting at a table and I said, Rodrigo, do you realize Nikita <laughs> is famous? And he was like, you are and I was like yes and not that Lion King is your only work it's one of your younger works but it's like you've done you have a very impressive resume and he was just like I can't believe it I'm here with young Nala <laughs> I just remember like oh this is kind of fun I'm just like sitting in sitting in the fangirling here of this and I'm like yeah this my friend Nikita I'm friend I know it's so interesting with voiceover because you just kind of in a booth by yourself yeah doing the work and then and then you see well you see the like the premiere you're like oh okay this is a big deal yeah and then you go on about your business after that like excitement and then you know disney will put stuff in a vault and then it'll come back out and then like 10 years later it's big all over again yes and then it's quiet and it's big all over again. well and i bet with social media because sometimes you might not know until you're like tagged and stuff you'd be like oh it's big right. again <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah oh my gosh that's so funny one of my memories too i remember hearing about how i want to say maybe we're in like a a kid's choir or a girl's choir you got to sing or meet whitney houston Back in the day. Oh, no, I was in a singing group, a, singing group. A, a, like a signed singing group. We were on MCA Records. Uh-huh. And we were label mates with Shantae Moore, Aaron Hall, Damian Hall, Jesse Powell, who I think passed away mm. recently, and one other person that I forget. And so that was her, that was her listening party. Yeah, so we were... We that was girls the, at the Whitney Houston listening party. I don't remember what album. I just feel like I saw a picture at, at some point where yeah. you were with Whitney. Well, she was already married to Bobby Brown. Uh -huh. so Yeah. But I, I still don't remember what album it was. That is like iconic. I get chills just even thinking about I love Whitney Houston. I know. Oh. Especially after she passed away, I was like searching for that picture. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I bet. That was like my... The first ballad I ever learned when I was like six or seven was Greatest Love of All. <laughs> oh, which is such, 
I mean, it's like played at every like preschool and kindergarten graduation right, right. everywhere because it is. We believe yeah. the children are the future. Yes, we do. I'm the child. Do well. Let them yes, do well. That's right. One other funny memory. I don't know if you realize this, but you are the person that taught me how to curl my hair with a flat iron. Oh, do you remember yes. this? I don't, this was like my little flip. Yes, I always thought I knew how to do with the flat iron. Yes, because I was like, I I was so flabbergasted that you could use that you could have such good wrist work. Anyone could have such good wrist work to like curl like that. And then you were like, I'll just curl your hair, and I was like, okay. And we were like, I. I don't even know what we're doing. We're like sitting around waiting for a sailor or something to happen. And I was like, curl my hair, girl. This looks <laughs> awesome. So, and ever since, I'm like, you know, I tell people, like, I've known it all along. You know, you can curl your hair with the flat iron. You don't, you don't even need like the big ass, like curling, curling big old one. You can do this. And so, yeah. No, just so, need a little heat. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. Well, and speaking of just needing a little heat, I think, you know, when we talk about putting advocacy into action, how do you like that segue? Yeah. I know. When we put snaps, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. I appreciate it. Well, when we're putting a little bit of heat, when we're Mm -hmm. and we're being authentic. So this piece you were saying about the story, it's not just telling a story. Mm -hmm. It's really being transparent and something that you've been able to do and it's it's not easy to speak out about some of these things but you've been able to be transparent whether you're in the podcast talking about some struggles we face in motherhood whether it's talking through career things you're also an acting coach are you running a whole thing in motion i have i have a panel coming up it was a talk series that was in my heart for like a long a long time and i finally just went ahead and started it literally two days before the pandemic. So we have our first, we had our first part of the talk series at American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Uh-huh. Literally, I think it was like March 6th or something. And then the shutdown was like March 19th. Or something yeah, like I was that. like, it was March. We all know when it was March. Yeah. When we had like shut down. It was the early stages. Like we had gotten like some hand sanitizer or whatever at the sign-in booth. Like it was really new. <laughs> You're like, there might be a cough coming around. Little do yeah. we know. Oh my gosh. And then two years later, yeah, I had I had one online dealing with kids and entertainment. So they were kids and now they're adults. So they have they were like series regular on popular, like Nickelodeon and Disney. And so now I have a few well-known actors that are going to be talking about character development. That's awesome. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just one of the many things. Again, I don't even know how you're available to be talking to me. Right. Now. Well, I think it's because of diabetes. I Somebody said that or or it could be because I'm half Jamaican. I don't know. <laughs> but somebody once said that you're like a renaissance woman. I was like, no, I think it's because diabetes. Like when you have this or at least this is what I internalize it. Like you have this disease mm-hmm. that can like take you out at any moment. Like. It's just not in my brain to wait till I've arrived to do something that I want to do. So whenever I want to do something, I just do it. <laughs> I like that. Ooh, that is quote worthy. We're quoting it. I love yeah, it. it. Yeah, I don't have time. I mean, I probably do, God willing. But in my mind, I'm like, literally, you're not promised tomorrow. One wrong move of insulin is too much. One wrong move of insulin is too little. Like, 
you know, I keep thinking I didn't have insulin for five hours. That's such little time. Yeah. And I was in the ICU for two weeks. Right. Where so, they were going to possibly have to do surgery. Like, yeah, it, it just, it's just crazy. So yeah, I've kind of, since my teens, I feel like I've just kind of, if I want to do something, I'm just going to do it. Like, even yeah. if it's scary, like when I went overseas to study for a year, my junior year, mm-hmm. I told my mom, I was like, everything's just going to keep on going while I'm gone. And she was like, they'll be here when you get back. Oh, I love <laughs> so that. I just went because I said I wanted to go study in Europe yes. when I was little. Yeah. I mean, you've done, you did so much when you were little. And, and yeah, it's, I, I love that philosophy, you know, in terms of within OCD. So mm-hmm. there, I don't know how much you know about OCD. I've come to learn a lot and I could get on a whole thing about it. So what's the cliff notes Okay, version? the cliff notes version. Okay. So <laughs> within OCD and where I think this can like impact what I would imagine with even within diabetes is having an autoimmune disease, you can have some health anxiety, mm-hmm. especially when the stakes are high. You yeah. are without insulin for five hours. You could be in the ICU mm-hmm. for two weeks. Within OCD, it's a little different than health anxiety, and it's more expansive than just in health themes. But it's when you really have these, you could look at it one of two ways. You could look at it as intrusive thoughts that Mm -hmm. if I didn't do this correctly, it's going to lead to I could die. And, And some pieces of that, when we're looking at a disease like diabetes, is absolutely relevant because you know your pancreas is reliant on the insulin for survival. Right. But in terms of within the OCD brain, what's happening is we may get an intrusive thought could be around health anxiety. It could be around what if I accidentally hurt somebody? It could be a myriad of things. And that intrusive thought leads to a good amount of distress because I don't want to hurt somebody. Like, I don't want to die. I don't want these things to happen. And so what happens for a lot of people is they try to cope with it in a way that at the time can feel very small and natural, but really can develop and function as this compulsory behavior or safety behavior that now is reliant upon if I don't do that thing, like if I don't check this pump, and and, and, and it's hard to compare when we're going, okay, diabetes, you have to check your pump. Like you have to, absolutely. Absolutely. But if you start to get into this this place where it's like, if I don't, then the bad thing is going to happen. And then even if you do check it, you don't have that reassurance per se that the bad thing isn't going to happen. Then mm-hmm. you can find that cycle around and that distress to increase. And so when we have that repeated cycle of these thoughts and then we have that distress that follows, that is what we define as OCD. A lot of people think of OCD as something like I check the locks or I need to wash my hands a lot. Well, it can include aspects of that in terms of compulsions. Mm-hmm. It's so much bigger and deeper. And a lot of people are living with kind of that invisibility, too, of masking and trying to hide what's going on. One of the things that we've talked about in terms of treatment intersectionality, and I started this series last week. But barriers, absolutely. Like financial, socioeconomic class, it is the crazy price of healthcare. All sorts of different barriers can happen there. Another Mm -hmm. thing, though, is when the research 
is predominantly on North American and Western European folks, then mm-hmm. it's not representative of everybody and yeah. how our bodies work, how we metabolize things varies mm-hmm. from country to country, culture to culture. Mm-hmm. And then even within, you know, here we are, we're Americans without immune diseases. And different ones, but still it's like, you know, this can strike everybody. And so there's not always, at least within OCD and mental health, there's not always trust that we can go and get helped for something and it's not going to come back to bite us in the ass. We're not going to be thrown in a hospital or we could go to a hospital and somebody could say, go, go home and drink some Gatorade. You know, and I'm not trying to say that statement was made for one reason or another, but it's like at a certain point, this Mm -hmm. becomes a barrier because unless you're just a fierce, badass self-advocate like you were and you were like, nope, not taking that for an answer. Like Mm -hmm. people can walk away and they can't die because they don't. They they didn't know. And okay, okay. So what can we do to increase the education and what can we do to increase the access? So one piece of that you're saying is that personal story. Well, also the, these organizations and uh, these overarching organizations that, that kind of house the advocacy of whatever particular disease it is. Yeah. The boards and, and the streamline all throughout, all the way to the volunteers need to be inclusive and need to be colorful. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so for instance, we're, we, something that I always, me and some of my other peers are saying, like, even with new paperwork that's coming out or new, new stuff on the website, we're like, well, do you have a Spanish version? Yeah. Oh, no, not yet. Why not? <laughs> right. Like, you know, or, you know, these black and brown communities are, the numbers are off the charts with this disease so why don't we it's not uh, we don't need to have this like melting pot thing like we need separate workshops we need we need workshops for the african-american community yeah we go to the churches and whatever we need a separate one for maybe pregnant women we need a separate one for for latin culture people it's like it's okay to separate it out because of like what you were saying the the different cultural barriers the different ways of doing things in those communities yeah even as simple as certain communities not even going to the doctor just generation to generation passing that along oh yeah Um, oh you know so there's and then there's the representation piece like yes sometimes they just need someone that looks like them telling them about what's going on with them yeah so these organizations across the board need to be just as colorful as the people that they put on their pamphlet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm kind of curious when you went to that training for call to Congress back in yeah. 2011, yeah. like, was it a colorful group? It was. I'm it was. That's why, that. that's why I was, I, was, I was mesmerized by the different age diversity, the different color background diversity. We even had, I mean, different backgrounds career-wise, like there was some researchers there and they were complaining you know, that they don't get a lot of funding for this specific thing. So they're having to go to other countries. They were like, in a minute, you're going to lose some of your researchers and doctors. 
America. Because right. <laughs> we're going to go to other countries who, who support preventative care and are going to fund our research. So it's not even just the people living with it. It's like the caretakers, the caregivers. It's like a domino effect. But I think, you know, the big takeaway from the pandemic that I think is spreading more is that representation matters. Yeah. We'll see if that keeps going because, you know, it gets hyped around a big catastrophic event exactly. and then everything kind of goes back to normal. <laughs> Isn't that the thing? There's the big reaction. There's the yeah. there's the fluff up. And then it's like the foam deflates and it's like right. business as usual. But when you went even and Honestly, I was prepared to hear it. No, it wasn't. And so I am encouraged. Well, that, 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 that particular one, I think because it was, it was so many states and so many, like at least 10 or five advocates from each state. Yeah. It was like, you're bound to see a little variety. And a little, and the, and there should be at the very least a little variety. Right. <laughs> yes. A little bit. Yeah. There are some, some salt and pepper sprinkles. <laughs> We was still fairly monochromatic. We need more color. We need more color in our life, right? Like, but and yeah. not just this statement in your mission. Like, I feel like a lot of universities are starting to use the the buzzwords inclusion and diversity, and yeah, but it's like an equity. But like, but are you for real? Like, are you just adding yeah. that to your website? <laughs> Actions speak louder than words. Always, exactly. It is yeah. not changed. It's pretty simple. If you say yeah. one thing and you do another. That's a problem. One of the, I mean, that's just across the board. That's it just is. like, you know, the industry talking about a lack of women. Okay. Well, there needs to be a, not just women in front of the screen, but behind the scenes and the, the decision makers. Like, nothing's going to change unless, like, the behind the scenes and, and the hierarchy of things is just as diverse as the audience. Absolutely. I was talking, my guest last week, he is based in the UK and was like, you know, the UK has a lot of similar struggles to the US mm -hmm. and also realizing like there isn't a lot of good research and he happens to be a black English man. And he said, mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of trust in the system that we're going to be taken care of, that we're not going to be just labeled as psychotic or Mm -hmm. locked up for having this problem and yet i recognize like i need to go in and participate in this because we're not going to have representation if we don't step up too and it's yeah. really it's it's a really hard thing though and i love that perspective that you were mentioning of like i'm not guaranteed a day so if i'm going to do this i'm going to do this but that's a really hard thing for a lot of people, What you're, regardless of your gender, your sexual orientation, yeah. your race. It is a really hard thing sometimes to cross that threshold. And so for people that want to get involved in their own way, but maybe mm -hmm. just feel very intimidated by it. What would mm -hmm. you think, you know, in terms of whether we're talking OCD or diabetes or anything where we need some better representation so that mm -hmm. we can go, oh, I, if I go to a meeting, I'm happily surprised by more than a sprinkling of salt and pepper here, right? Like right. I, yeah. I'm, I'm happily surprised to find that People just like me, and it's not to say if we have the same gender, same sexual orientation, same skin color, that we're the same. No, but it, it does matter to realize, like, this is available for all of us. 
not yeah. just some of us that look a certain way and fit a certain type. Yeah. Well, there's, I think there's a variety of different ways under the umbrella of advocacy, right? Like mm-hmm. you're being an advocate by having this podcast. So for the creative people out there, they can do a podcast or they can share quotes about the condition on their social media. Mm-hmm. Or you can join whatever hub organization houses like that disease. You can join it and look at the like local chapters or whatever mm-hmm. and start going to those just yeah. to get information for yourself and your family. That's still advocating for yourself and then taking that information home to your family. And, you know, word of mouth is the OG social media and it still right. works. That's that's <laughs> true. That's it true. It works. So there's diff- there's many different ways. A lot of times there'll be, like I know with the ADA site, once you sign up to be an advocate, you'll start getting newsletters and or you'll get these call to actions where it's like a formed letter and you literally just like type in your story in the blank box and then sign the bottom. And then all these letters start going to like the senators and the and the representatives and a lot of the politicians. So that's another way that's not really taking a lot of your time just to sign a petition or sign sure. a letter and send it off. Um, and then your local, you'd be surprised. A lot of people don't know that your local district and your your local representative, you can literally call them up and ask for a meeting. Mm-hmm. You voted them in and they they're obligated and really do like to hear from their constituents. Right. It just seems like this out of reach thing. But it's you re- literally can take a few of your friends, call and say you want to talk to them about OCD. Yeah. So that when they're writing their policy or fighting when they go back to D.C., they can share some of the stuff that they learned from you. And recognizing they work for you. Like, like yeah, you said, you we, vote for them. So right, right. They definitely want to hear from their constituent. Yeah. Uh, so you want to lead with that. I'm in your district and I have a problem with this not being out there. This needs to be out there in this district. Mm-hmm. I want to set up a meeting so you can know more about it and we can come up with ways <laughs> yeah. together collaboratively right. where you can facilitate getting this out there in this community because we're suffering. Yeah. Well, and even even if you're an advocate for one, so maybe you're in a family where we haven't gone to the doctor a lot. I know certainly growing up, like my dad was never sick, mm-hmm. although he did have diabetes. But I mean, he did. He would say I'm never sick and he would never go. It starts mm-hmm. with going, well, OK, well, maybe if I'm feeling sick, then I'm going to go. Because uh-huh. now I'm being an advocate for me and I'm modeling for, at some point, my family that mm-hmm. we are better together. Yeah. And we can we can go and we can try. It's hard because people have negative experiences at yeah. doctors. This happens with therapists, too, certainly. And they're like, nope, not doing that again. And Well, and the way to change that is, like, my, the... It, it's what's an OBGYN. What's the one that's for like high risk pregnancies? Yeah, like the they're called something high different. risk. <laughs> yeah, the high risk like OB. Medical. I know what you're talking about. Like the high anyway, risk. That. Yeah, yeah. Who I ended up with was my third one. Mm-hmm. So just like the politicians work for you, your doctors work for you. Do not stay in a situation where you feel uncomfortable. You don't feel like you can ask questions. You're not getting solicited information. Like. You should still get information even if you don't have a question, but it's always good to go to your doctor with questions. But if right. you don't 
if you're not liking them, get a new doctor. Don't stay in that situation. Yeah. A lot of people feel like this is an authority type thing. Uh-huh. And you, you can, you, you can yes, you can absolutely fire them until you find the right one that right. works for you and your personality and your confidence, you know? Yeah, you're you're the authority on you, ultimately. Yeah. Like that's and, and Don't leaning stay in a bad relationship. <laughs> that's right. This is <laughs> this is really morphine, but yeah, I mean it when you get down to it, it's all about relationship, which is mm-hmm. it's true. You have to if you're gonna trust somebody with something like your health care, your mental health care, medical health care, then you've gotta be able to trust them. Mm-hmm. You don't have to force something and you shouldn't be forced right. to feel some, like that's not OK. We need to mm-hmm. be able to advocate. Sometimes, though, we don't know what we don't know. So like when you were first diagnosed, they didn't mm-hmm. the doctors didn't really guide you too much. No, on that. Really. they were like I, on their computer typing little things. You were like in and out. I didn't know anything about. Except for, like the only thing I knew about diabetes was still Magnolia's and Julia Roberts had type one diabetes. Right. And she died because she, she died when she had a kid. Right. So I was like, OK, I'm not going to be able to have kids. And <laughs> that's all I knew about type one. Right. So you go in thinking and that changes whether you decide wanting kids down the line or not. Like that mm-hmm. kind of choice just feeling stripped from you. Yeah. Without a choice, it feels so invasive it feels like such an assault on like i don't get to have that i don't get to whether you wanted it or not like the fact that i don't get that option and the reality is you do you have a beautiful daughter you and your husband are gorgeous all over there your family (laughs) but your daughter is like every time i see pictures of zara i'm like oh she just like lights up my heart because i'm just like that is one beautiful child so i just I mean, to imagine, and I can't even imagine, I'll, I'll ask you, you talked a little bit about it on the ADA podcast, but that has to be a nerve wracking experience going through pregnancy, having yeah. the initial thought even on diagnosis of like, yeah, Julia died. She did. Well, let me tell you, the first OBGYN that I saw, it happened to be a Caucasian lady, older lady, and I came in there and... This was before I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. I was, we were, I think I had gotten my A1C to a point where I think it was, I felt comfortable trying to have a baby. Mm-hmm. But she goes, oh, well, your age and you've had type 1 diabetes for 20 some years. She was like, you probably want to look into adoption. Or she goes, oh, you and your husband can be permanent babysitters for one of your neighbors. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That is I am not so joking. terrible. Uh, so when after I left, I said, OK, yeah, I don't want her. And I told the office what she told me. I don't know if they did anything. Probably not. You're like, I'd like to um, file a complaint. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so you're not going to be my. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> trusting you. But yeah, yeah, I mean, when you're told something by a medical provider that is yeah. that. Yeah. Could you imagine if I wasn't strong will? Right. Well, and then that's again where I go. I think. I think, irregardless of skin color, you can run into that, right? Where mm-hmm. you can have somebody that just has a concept of because you're type one and age, well, you know, now we're going to say, no, no, this isn't an option for you. But then mm-hmm. you can you can just see how different healthcare decisions 
mental health care decisions can mm-hmm. feel so impactful. The weight of our words matter. And here yeah. you can, in hindsight, go, she had really crappy bedside manner. But some really people are crappy. like, I'm never going to be a mom. Or, and yeah. I'm not saying if you don't, if you adopt, certainly you're a mom, if you foster and you, you, all that, like those things matter. But that is not the same as being the permanent babysitter for your neighbor's child. That's just insulting. Oh, like, oh my goodness. She, it was one of those times where you, I was so taken aback that I didn't even have like a quick pump. Uh huh. <laughs> I was just like, huh? Did she just say that to me? You're like a week later, you're like, I got the comeback. You know, I missed it. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that I, I've had moments like that, too, where I was just like. After this fact, you're like, oh, I should have said this. <laughs> yes, I'm so flabbergasted. And that's when I'm usually like calling to file a complaint. <laughs> Boy, I'm like, oh, we're going to note this for because maybe I didn't say something now, but there's a lot of people. I mean, am I so special that I'm just the one person that was said to like somebody needs to be held accountable for their little loose lip over there. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's tends to be the kind of fiery code that right. takes. But I get this misconception sometimes that I love conflict. I don't love conflict. It's kind of weird if you love conflict, okay? So <laughs> it's like, I wouldn't say I love conflict, but I do think it's important to stand up for ourselves. And even mm-hmm. if it's not my problem directly, it's always been a thing where I'm like, hey, this is a problem. I'm going to point it out for who I sense that's happening for over here. Because right. it can be really hard to stand up to that. And so when we start looking at, okay, well, what what matter could one voice make? It can make a difference. This is where mm-hmm. we get policy from. We have to get these voices and these voices collect and sometimes it is just that one story that's so impactful. And other times mm-hmm. it's the collection of these stories that say, OK, we're going to look into this a little more. Or maybe we'll have a subcommittee on it. Maybe we'll have a committee on it. And then right. you can you can get some legislation going in your respective country. And we have worldwide listeners. So how things move through your government. But here, I mean, we can advocate for that legislation and things do happen. Yeah. Differences are made. So you might feel like I am one voice, but you know what? I mean, it's Black History Month. There was a man, he had one voice, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. He made a pretty big damn difference, but there's still a lot of room for growth here, Mm -hmm. to say the least. And so what does one voice do? Well, it can do a whole lot. It can do a whole lot. And our voices matter. Definitely. Yes. All right. Well, Nikita, this has been so lovely catching up. Thank <laughs> you. Great. Oh, oh, thank you. I love that it was a conversation. Yeah. It felt natural. It was natural and it was wonderful to hear your voice as well as to catch up a little bit. But it's been a while. So thank, thank you. you. Bye. Right, bye. Thank you for that. It's always so good to catch up with friends, isn't it? And to create some new friends, when we think of allyship in the mental health or medical spaces, it's so nice to know that we can learn from one another's journeys, even when the diseases or the disorders are completely different. And doesn't that just speak to the meaning of this all? There's unity in diversity, family. And so an extra big special thanks to my friend Nikita a diabetic warrior, and now 
a part of our OCD fam. Also, for any of our new fam in town, this segment is the portion of the show where I talk about some direct application pieces that we can apply in our here, our now, to make this conversation even more meaningful, even more relevant. So some ideas Nikita shared included going to your organization and finding out about local chapters. How can you get involved? IOCDF.org is a great resource as the International OCD Foundation, and it has many affiliate programs for smaller organizations. I've had the pleasure of building relationships with OCD Midwest. Nikita serves on the SoCal board for her American Diabetes Association. IOCDF certainly has a SoCal board and a Midwest board and different state boards, in addition to a growing list of affiliates internationally. Also, there are organizations for different countries, like ADAA, while not specific to OCD, certainly inclusive of it here in the States, OCD UK, and OCD Australia, just to name a few. There are fact sheets and calls to action and ways to get involved, even on a very grassroots level. I mean, I don't know how many accounts that I'm connected to altogether when I look across OCD Family Podcast social media, where people are constantly posting infographics, reels, examples of OCD, treatment strategies, and encouragement. You may think you're just trying to pay forward or share something that was helpful for you, but guess what? You're also advocating. You're normalizing. You're chipping away at the stigma and bringing education to people about the realities of these disorders. So advocacy can look different for each of us. We can be artistic and creative, or we can write letters and submit pitches for our local legislators. Or, as we really learned, we can start with even just standing up for ourselves, our children, our partners, our parents, and saying, this starts here. We will be heard. We will be taken seriously. And this, this matters. I matter. We matter. So my challenge to you today is to think about your story. Think about your experience. And if you would be willing, risk sharing about that with at least one other person. Maybe that person is your doctor. Maybe that person is your therapist. Maybe it's your spouse or a best friend or a neighbor. Maybe it's sharing about this podcast that you heard and sharing it on social media. Hey, maybe it's even leaving OCD Family Podcast a five-star review so more folks can find this content in a sea of information and layers of algorithms. But whatever you choose, know that action moves us closer to hope. Awareness brings us closer to help. And advocacy creates policy, research, funding, support. So hey, let's go change the world a bit today. Because we, we really are better together. Until next week, fam. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. 
The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Nikita giving some tips to help policy stick. That's right. I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com. Mm-hmm.